I'm excited to have the opportunity to share God's word today. Many of our men are up at man camp, having a great time getting to know Jesus and learn how to love him and live for him every single day. But for us back here at home, we are in a series called I Am a Christian. And the series is based on the book of 1 John, and we're learning about what it means to be a Christian and what a Christian looks like. So far, we've seen that a Christian believes in Jesus, has God's spirit living inside of them, chooses God, and then also lives like they're forgiven. Today, we're going to look at what I believe to be one of the biggest proofs that I am a Christian, and I'm going to tell you what that is in just a moment, but before I do, let's pray. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to be at church today. Thank you for the health and strength to be here. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, um, that you would help our minds to stay focused in on on what is being presented this morning, not about our to-do lists or the things that we have coming up this week or after church. We pray that we can hear from you, and we invite you to speak um, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Well, if you would please turn in your Bible with me to John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. That is where we're going to start this morning. And as you do that, I'd like you to keep in mind that what we're about to read in the Gospel of John is written by the same man who wrote the book 1 John, who... um, that is the Apostle John. And so he wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote the book of 1 John. So this is the same author. And I also want to give just a little bit of context about this portion of Scripture. What I'm about to read to us was written right before Jesus died on the cross. He was with his followers, and they were together in a room. He had just washed their feet. He's having a meal with them, and then he's getting ready to go to the cross. And that's the context of what I'm going to read right now. Um, John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other... Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So here we see that Jesus is giving us not just a a command, but he's also giving us an example to follow. Because he is saying, like, I've loved you, that's how you are to love each other. And I want to make a comment right at the outset of the message this morning that Part of God's mission, Christ's mission for us as his followers is to show his love to everyone in the world. That's important. We understand that. God has said the two greatest commandments are to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your your neighbor as yourself. The context of this portion of scripture that I'm going to be sharing today is it says love one another, love each other. And so the, oftentimes when we think about loving others, we think of those outside of the church as well we should because God has instructed us to love everyone, whether you believe in Christ or you don't. The particular focus of my message this morning is loving 
one another, the each other. So when Jesus said, um, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love each other, what he was saying is those of you who have chosen to follow me, those of you who are considered brothers and sisters in Christ, that's how the world is going to know that you are my follower is when you love each other. So see the difference there? Yes, we're to love everyone in the whole world. I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that that's not what Jesus commanded. However, I am saying the particular focus of our message this morning is how we love each other within the body of Christ, okay? So that's, that's where we're going today. So Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. So the this is sacrificial love. Jesus didn't say all men will know that you are my followers if you judge one another, Jesus didn't say, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you instruct and teach one another. And he didn't even say, by this all men will know that you are my followers if you meet together once a week with each other. That is not what Jesus said. He said, by this all men will know that you are my followers if you love one another. Now, according to Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words, love is the characteristic word of Christianity. Not judgment, not teaching, not meeting together, but love. That is the characteristic word of Christianity. When people think of Christians, we want them to think of love. Therefore, our main point of the message today is this sacrificially loving my brothers and sisters in Christ is the biggest proof that I am a Christian. Because I am a Christian, I love you. And so we're going to take each of those three words, I love you, and we're going to talk about each one of them to see what that means as a Christian. So the first word is I. So I and why, why can we even say, I love you to others? In 1 John 4, chapter 19, it says this, we love each other because he first loved us. And the only reason that I can love you or that you can love me is because Jesus loved us first. If you think about it, in every relationship, there's always the person who loved first. If you think about like moms and kids, the mom's going to love a kid before a kid's going to love a mom. Um, In romantic relationships and marriages, you can know that normally, well, that always there's someone who said, I love you first. In my personal circumstance with my husband, Mark, he loved me first before I loved him back. And he showed me what love was by being long-suffering and patient and consistently kind to me until he broke down my defenses and really I had no other choice but to love him back. And although God's love is much more perfect than any human love could ever be, it is a similar concept. God shows us what perfect love is like by paying the price for our sins with his son Jesus with his son's life, and then he pursues us until we say yes to him and yes to his love. We love because he first loved us. And those of us who have experienced God's love can truly love others. A loving person is one who has first received love from God. So I love you because Jesus first loved me. Now let's talk about the word love. 
In the Greek language in the Bible, there's four different words for love. There's eros, which is like a sexual passionate love. There is phileo, which is a friendship love. There's storge, which is a family love, especially for parents and children. And then finally, the strongest love in all of the Bible is the word agape, because that is an unconditional love that will never change. It isn't earned. It's just because God has decided, I love you. And it's not conditional. It's because I've chosen to love you. The interesting thing about the word agape is that it can be used as both a noun, agape, but that word can also be used as a verb, agapeo. God is love, noun, and God loves, verb. So in, in the scriptures, we see God's love as both a noun and a verb, and I want to read to you a passage out of 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 that says this. We know what real love, agape, the noun, is, because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love, again, the noun agape, be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love, agapeo, the verb, each other, let us show the truth by our actions. So what this verse is saying is let us demonstrate by the way we live, the actions that we, we take, that we have God's love living inside of us. We do that by loving each other. That's the way that we demonstrate God's love that is in us by loving one another. One of the most well-known and descriptive portions of scripture about love is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. And again, the word for love there is the God's love, agape. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not want what belongs to others. It does not brag. It is not proud. It does not dishonor other people. It does not look out for its own interests. It does not easily become angry. It does not keep track of other people's wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is full of joy when the truth is spoken. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It never gives up. Love never fails. <clears throat> as I was reading through that portion of scripture, knowing that God is love, as the Bible says, and it says that a couple, at least a couple times in the book of First John alone, I thought, what would happen if I took the word love, the noun love, and I replaced that with God? Because God is love. So what does that mean that God looks like? How does he act? How does he demonstrate his love to you and me? So I'm going to read this again with God inserted instead of love. God is patient. God is kind. God does not want what belongs to others. God does not brag. God is not proud. God does not dishonor other people. God does not look out for his own interests. And God does not easily become angry. 
God does not keep track of other people's wrongs. God is not happy with evil. God is full of joy when the truth is spoken. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God never gives up. God never fails. Or in another version, it says God never stops loving. And if you want a a homework assignment, it'd be a wonderful thing for you to take all of those words and go through scripture and find instances of that, of God's love. Since we have God's spirit living inside of us, we also have his love living in us as well. So I wondered what would happen if I took it one step further and replaced the word love with my name instead and turned it into a question. That would probably help me to get an accurate reading of how well I am loving towards others. So I'm going to read this scripture again, replacing my name. And as I do, I want you to replace your name. You can either read it out loud if you want, or you can read it in your mind, um, whichever you prefer. But insert your own name. And as we do that, that's going to be a really good exercise for us to see how well we are loving each other. Is Kate patient? Is Kate kind? Does Kate want what belongs to others? Does Kate brag? Is Kate proud? Does Kate dishonor other people? Does Kate look out for her own interests? Does Kate easily become angry? Does Kate keep track of other people's wrongs? Is Kate happy with evil? Is Kate full of joy when the truth is spoken? Does Kate always protect? Does Kate always trust? Does Kate always hope? Does Kate ever give up? And does Kate ever stop loving? Now that's pretty eye-opening, isn't it? For some of us, we may feel like, ah! And for me, I'm like, ah! (laughs) Um, But I want us to not go home feeling discouraged or defeated, but only to really do some self-examination. But I want to encourage us with 1 John 4, verse 16 that says this. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. So that's good news. And the reason why is that because when God who is love lives in you, lives in me, and the longer his love lives in you, the more loving you are going to become because he helps you to love more and more and more. One of the ways that you can tell someone who has known Jesus for a very long time is by looking at their love life. (laughs) Don't take that wrong, but um, how they love other people. Those who have been walking with Jesus and knowing Jesus, serving Jesus for a long time, there's something about their life that is full of love. The NIV study Bible says all love comes ultimately from God. Genuine love is never self-generated by his creatures. God is love. I'd like to go back and just highlight three of those descriptors that I read out of 1 Corinthians of what love looks like, because I think they're all very important. I don't have time to to talk about all three of them, but three of them I thought were really important for us as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
The first one is love does not keep track of other people's wrongs. Then the second one I'm going to share is love always protects. And then finally, love never gives up or stops loving. Let's start with keeping track of other people's wrongs. How easy is it for you and for me to hold a grudge? For some reason, we as humans are often obsessed with keeping score. The only time that it might even be remotely godly to keep score is in some sort of sporting event or when you're playing cards with me and I'm winning, okay? (laughs) I have a desire to keep score. It's human nature. That's just part of how we do. That's fine in sports. It's fine in playing cards, but it's not fine in relationships. And here's why. In every relationship that you have, you are regularly going to be doing something wrong (laughs) or you are going to regularly be wronged. That's how it is in the nature of imperfect human relationships. And if you keep track, it's just going to start to consume you and it's going to actually be quite exhausting. And you may say, well, yeah, Kate, but it's just really not fair. How come I have to be the one to forgive? How come I have to be the one to let go? How come I have to get over it? Why Why is it always me? Have you ever felt that way before? Maybe those of you who have been married a few years. (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, it's because that's what Jesus would do. That's what Jesus did do, and that's what Jesus does do for you and me. He does not keep track of our, our wrongs, which is amazing to me. Secondly, there is a lot of freedom in that approach to life of letting go. Because when you keep all the negative ways that someone has wronged you in your heart and in your mind, that is no way to live. It's exhausting. And so what God is encouraging some of us this morning is to let it go. Trusting God to deal with it and to move forward with a clean slate. Now, of course, that's not a substitute for proper boundaries in relationships, Boundaries are a very good and very healthy thing, and I'm going to mention that two more times as I'm going through this, but don't let keeping track of other people's wrongs hinder you from loving them and doing good to them. The Bible tells us that for those of us who believe in Jesus, have said yes to Jesus, that when we get to heaven, we're going to have a mansion waiting up there for us. That's part of our inheritance, and it's part of our reward, but guess what? You do not get to choose who your next door neighbor is up in heaven. So what are we going to do? Are we going to go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, excuse me, but I just can't live right next door to so-and-so because they gossiped about me all the time. So I can't live next door to them for all of eternity. Of course, we're not going to do that. So we want to get good now of letting things go and walking in freedom and walking in love. Secondly, love always protects I love the way the Passion Translation translates this verse. It says, love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. Isn't that a really beautiful phrase, love is a safe place of shelter? There's some notes in the Passion Translation for this phrase that says this, Although commonly understood to mean that love can bear hardships of any kind, the form of the verb protects, stego, is actually the word for roof. 
Paul is saying that love covers all things like a roof covers a house. Love does not focus on what is wrong, but will bear with the shortcomings of others. And like a roof protects and shields, you could say that love springs no leak. (laughs) It is a safe place that offers shelter, not exposure. Now, again, as a women's pastor, it's really important for me to note that this verse is telling us to bear with the shortcomings of others, not the abuse of others. And there's a big difference there, isn't there? God doesn't command or expect us to overlook or stay in an abusive situation. But we're not talking about abuse. We're talking about shortcomings. Shortcomings are like those little nitpicky things that just want to drive you crazy about someone. And that's totally different. So love protects by not holding someone's shortcomings over their head, but by covering those shortcomings with love, with grace, with understanding. When we say that love protects, we're saying, I will not expose your shortcomings to others but will protect your human frailty and your human failings. Finally, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8 says, love never gives up or stops loving. And I think it's important to expand on this phrase a little bit because I've struggled with this over the years. Certainly I know that God's love um, is never going to give up or stop loving, but what about my love? Or what about all the broken relationships that we see in this world? How do I even make sense of all of that? It helps me when I keep in mind the following things. First of all, we know that God's love is truly perfect. And as as humans, even when God's spirit is living inside of us, our love will never be as perfect as his. We just do not have the capacity to do that. We will get it wrong sometimes. God's love is truly the only love that's ever going to fail and that will never give up. Also, by its very definition, a relationship involves more than one person. And although I may be able to love you, you may, for whatever reason, not be able to love me. I'm only responsible for my part of the love in any given relationship. I'm not responsible for if you love me or how you love me. All I'm responsible for and all I can control is how I'm going to love you. Also, we know that sometimes relationships change. Sometimes firm boundaries need to be put into place in a relationship. Boundaries are a very good thing. Because they help to determine where I begin and where you end and vice versa. And boundaries help love to persevere. I want to love you the best I can. And maybe sometimes the only way for me to do that is from way over here at a distance because of some boundaries. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. So how do you determine if your love has given up or not? I have a fairly simple question for for that. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I have someone in my life and thinking maybe my love has given up on them. Let me tell you, and this is very simplistic, I understand, but it's a good starting point, okay? Ask yourself this question. Can I truly say I want what's best for you and I can wish you well? If you can say yes to that, your love has not given up or stopped loving. 
The main point of our message today is that sacrificially loving my brothers and sisters in Christ is the biggest proof that I'm a Christian. All of those things that I just talked about involve self-sacrifice, don't they? Giving up my need to keep score when someone has wronged me, swallowing my pride and covering over someone's shortcomings instead of shining a light on them and exposing them, and even continuing to love when I've been hurt by someone's inability to love me. That always, that, all of those things require a self-sacrificing God kind of love. So we've talked about the I, we've talked about the love, and now we're going to talk about the you. Who is you? And like I mentioned at the beginning of the message, most often when we talk about loving others, we think of those outside of the family of faith who haven't said yes to Jesus. And of course, we all understand, yes, we are to love everyone, everyone. Sometimes, however, I think as believers, we focus on loving others that sometimes we're not keeping track or um, loving each other inside the family of faith as well as we could be. And I think it's important for us to note that in the context here of 1 John and much of the New Testament, by the way, when, when we are instructed to love each other, the each other is those who have said yes to Jesus. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Those one and others were the ones who were also hearing God's words, who were hearing Jesus's words, those who had chosen to follow him. Often today, we refer to one another as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we look at the scriptures about love in the book of 1 John, we see the same language is used. For example, 1 John 4, verse 11 to 12 says, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. So therefore, what John is saying is that as followers of Christ, we are expected to love each other, to love one another, and to love each other well. Have you ever found that it's easier for you to treat those outside of your family better than the people inside your family? For example, you are having a rough day, you go to the grocery store and you treat the, the person who helps you there and people that you see down the aisles just so beautifully. And then when you get home, you treat your husband or your kids um, terribly. That's, that's something that happens in families, isn't it? I remember when I was growing up, <clears throat> my sisters and I went through phases of treating each other very terribly. And in fact, one of the most trouble that I got into as a little kid was when I shoved my sister up against the wall and tried to fight her. And it was in Sunday school that I did that. I'm not, I'm not proud to admit that, but it was in Sunday school of all places. And I remember that my mom would get so upset when we couldn't be loving to each other or treat each other right. And then she always said, you'll understand one day when you have kids of your own. And she was right, because now I do have kids. And when they're terrible to each other, it breaks this mama's heart. The same is true for the father heart of God. When we don't treat each other right, it breaks his heart. God loves you just as much as he loves your brother and sister in Christ. He doesn't love you better than he loves someone else. 
It's our love for one another within the family of faith that makes Christ attractive to those outside of the family of faith. Have you ever admired a family? When I think of the families that I admire, it's because of how they treat each other. It's very attractive, and I think, I want to be a part of that family. Look how they treat each other. They're, they show unconditional love. They forgive each other. They have fun together. That's what I, the kind of family that I want to be a part of. And the same is true for us in God's family. When we love each other well, we are attractive to those outside of the family. And they think, I, I want in on that. I want to be loved like that. I want to be accepted and, and given forgiveness and grace. And it's very simple yet profound that we can help fulfill Christ's mission and add others to his family by loving each other well, by loving those who are already in the family well. Sacrificially loving my brothers and sisters in Christ is the biggest proof that I am a Christian. Now, there isn't, nor ever could be, any greater example or picture of sacrificial love than Jesus Christ. Perfect, sinless, yet choosing to put that aside as he carried the weight of the entire world, the sin of the entire world, past, present, and future. He carried that on his blameless shoulders. Because of his love for us, Christ laid down his life for you and for me. And that's the example that we are supposed to follow. 1 John 3.11 says, The beautiful message we heard from the start is that we should walk in self-sacrificing love toward one another. Communion is a picture of that self-sacrificing love of one person to another. Jesus did what was best for you. Jesus did what was best for me at personal, great personal cost to himself. He gave up his life to show us what love truly is. When we say I am a Christian, what we are really saying is, I have received Jesus' love for myself, and now I will love you like Jesus has loved me, by giving myself up for you. When we say I love you to a brother or sister in Christ, it isn't some cute, trite little expression. It's very weighty, it's powerful, and it sometimes can even be a scary declaration. Because what we're really saying is, I will sacrifice myself for you. I will do what's best for you, no matter what it costs me, just like Jesus did. And as Christians, that's our goal, to love one another the way that Christ has loved us. I can think of really no better way to respond to this message this, mor this morning than by taking communion together. As you can see, we have different tables set up around the auditorium. Karen and Troy are going to lead us in a beautiful song. And what I'm going to invite you to do when you're ready is to get up, go to one of the tables to get the bread and to get the juice. You can get that and take it back to your seat with you. Before you take the bread and the juice, I invite you to look at your own love life. I encourage you to receive the love 
that Jesus has for you, the unconditional love that will never, ever fail. Receive his love and then also examine your own heart and life. Recommit to sharing his love with others, with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. For most of us, that's the only step we need to take. But for maybe one or two or three of us in the room, there might be an additional step to take. This is so important to Jesus, us loving each other, that there's another portion of scripture that says, when you're going to communion and you're examining your own heart and you're ready to take communion, look and see if you have anything against a brother or sister in Christ. Something that's not right between you and someone else. And that could be a spouse here in the room, a friend here in the room, a parent or a child, a sibling. It could be someone that you serve with here at Cheney Faith Center. It could be one of the leaders here that, that there's a problem with. What Jesus asks us to do is to go and make it right. To go and say, hey, this isn't right between you and me. Can we get this fixed so that I can go have communion and have um, that time with Jesus to receive his sacrificial love? So for a couple in the room, maybe you're going to need to make something right with whoever you walked in the door with or someone here in this room before you even come up to the table. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your self-sacrificing love. Thank you that communion represents that. What we hold in our hands represents your body that went to the cross. It represents your blood that was shed to make us right with you. You pursued a relationship with us first and said, this is how I'm doing it. I'm going and I'm making things right so that future generations can receive the love of Christ and can show the love of Christ. Jesus, you did that for us. We are humbled by that. We are grateful for that. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to really receive your love and help us to be people who show your love to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can come and take communion when you're ready.